Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. So, you watched The Brits. That's very I brave the of Brits. you. I watched The Brits, which I haven't done for a while, actually. And it was, but I saw most of it, actually. And, oh, I know, I know. Oh, I, I know. I know, I know. I did feel a bit of an old commotion because I missed the old days. What an unoriginal thing to say. But I remember... We, know, we did, you, to, to interrupt for a second, we've always missed the old we've days with the Brits. Yeah. And even in like 1986, so the Brits, oh, it's not as good as he was. Not you know, as good as he years was. Before. Anyway, go on. Carry I on. know. Yeah, you had Mick Fleetwood and Sam Fox, and everyone's going, this is a catastrophe. Years later, again, wasn't it great when Mick Fleetwood was live? Was, it was, was risky. It was chaos. daring. You know, yes, it was funny. But uh, no, I just felt nostalgic for that, you know, the mid-90s, really, where you, it, where you had lots of groups. You know, you have you had Blur, you know, winning two or three awards. You had M people, you had Oasis, you had REM. You know, you'd have Supergrass, you'd have Bon Jovi, Massive Attack. You know, even the dance categories were a band. Everybody was a kind of a band. And this time, I kind of felt it was just, it was just the solo artist. Aren't they? Is that what it is? Yeah, so you've got Adele and you've got Ed Sheeran, you've got Silk Sonic and Billie Eilish and Little Sims. And Olivia Rodrigo and Dua Lipa, and you know, and they're all there, and they're all really presentable, and they're fabulously turned out, and they're they're terribly welcoming and accommodating towards each other. It's a bit like watching a kind of film awards where everyone's terribly nice about each other because they might work together. Yeah. Whereas in music, you know, it used to be in the days of the bands when bands roamed the earth, they were kind of self-contained uh, units, rather like football teams, actually. You know that that were were kind of playing a match, and you just kind of you rooted for one, and you wanted them to will and win, and they were rivals, and they said unkind things about each other, and you know there was I can remember being at Brits once and seeing Blur, I think it was, or about to go up and get the award, and just and they knew they were going up to get this award, and just before when they handed around a packet of cigarettes and all lit up a cigarette, <laughs> and one of them carried a kind of a bottle of lock, yeah, all you know, and they stormed up on stage, one of them probably dropped the microphone, and one of them said yeah. something they apparently spontaneous. They'd thought about very cleverly to, to get them into the papers that that kind of dissed Oasis, you know. And uh, I kind of loved all that, really. And it just seemed terribly polite now. 
And I, oh, that's all I had to say. Is no, I miss the great days because a band, there were bands. The band is a drama in itself. A band is it? a drama. A band is a, is, is a is a football team that you support. You want to win or lose. And they're rivals, and there's that kind of friction. But also within the band, there's always one member of the band who might go off on one, or one yeah, member yeah, of the band who behaves. It just doesn't matter who the group is; it will yeah, always, yeah. it will always come down to that. Whereas you yeah. have an individual, you can't have that. Now it's funny you should say that about bands because I'm just reading a piece that really irritates me in the Sunday Times today. One of those. There's many, you know, you get these regular kind of comment pieces about about uh, how streaming is ripping off bands and so forth. You know, written by middle aged arts critics. So you, you think uh, they're they're all kind of harking uh, back to say there was apparently I must must have missed it, Mark. I don't know if you saw it, but there must have been some golden age, maybe in the seventies or the eighties, when all bands were perfectly happy with everything they were paid, and and, <laughs> and, and they were always saying, you know, it's a very good, it's a living wage. I'm really happy with this. It can go on for a while. You know, I've had my annual review. It's going to go up by 5% next year and so forth. I don't remember that happening. But apparently, according to these people, it did happen. The headline, anyway, of this piece is, for bands of tomorrow, mega deals have a sting in the tail. Get the topical hook. Yeah, or sting or sold is uh, see what they've done. whatever yeah. is, is publishing or is it recording catalogue sometime in, in the last couple of weeks. And therefore, you get this usual contrast between... You know, in the people who made their name in the 60s, 70s, or 80s, or whatever, making fortunes on their living on the Tuscan vineyards and whatever, yeah. as compared to the strugglers and the strivers and the Brits. And, and where's all as this if that gonna... was never the case before? Yeah, absolutely. And also for bands of tomorrow, as you quite rightly point out, there probably won't be any bands of tomorrow. You know, certainly don't appear to be. The no. way, you know, you, you describe the Brits, it's an individual business. It is, it's partly know. an economic thing, you know. It's a lot cheaper to have a solo artist than some lumbering great, you know, gang you've got to cart around with you. Uh, but, but one of the things in this piece is saying, you know, it's going to be difficult for the average band. And I was just thinking about, who's the average band? Yeah. Yeah. What does that mean? Was there ever an average band who kind of settled... For being in the middle of the in the middle of the pack, you know what I mean? Not completely out of the game and not at the top of it either. I don't think it ever worked like that, did it? You know? And I mean, so many of the attempts to predict what will happen in the music business in the future are just completely they're wasted breath. Because what we've seen, you know, we've seen a lot of change, haven't we, Mark? We remember when it was green fields around here. And none of the things that have happened have been anything that anybody predicted at all, have they? No. You know, nobody predicted at any point in the 70s or 80s. I'll tell you what, in the future, there will be DJs who will be paid millions of dollars for playing records. playing records. For playing records. Same records every night, possibly. (laughs) Nobody predicted that whatsoever. You know, nobody predicted streaming. Nobody predicted you might pay £200 for a ticket to go to a festival. Nobody predicted that at all. So nobody knows what's going to happen with this stuff in the future, do they, at all? No, you know? not a clue. And, and trying to predict... And it, and it changes so rapidly, doesn't it? Well, yeah, and then it may not change for a while, and then suddenly it changes by, you know, technology, economy, all kinds of things, you know. And so I'm, I've just had it with re- reading pieces about... 
You know, there used to be a time in the record business when everybody made a very good living, and then it, and now it's all gone away as a consequence of, of streaming or whatever. Because feed into that, I think that I sent you, I think this week, is a very good piece. Oh, uh, the Bob Lefsetz thing on the yeah. Bob Lefsetz letter. Bob Lefsetz does a very good kind of industry, yeah, you know, um, newsletter and so forth. And he had a long piece uh, contributed by a guy called David Messias, uh, American, who runs a company called 30 Tigers, which does management and distribution and marketing services for loads and loads of kind of independent yeah. acts, I suppose, you know. And, and uh, I don't know it was in the course of that or somewhere else that I learned the staggering fact that there are 60,000 new songs uploaded to the streaming services Every, Every day. day. Well, the Every thing that day. thing that struck me about that is a really good piece. In fact, we should post it at the end of this. Yeah, one, yeah. Is that in two thousand and four, there were fifty thousand albums a year, roughly yeah, fifty thousand, yeah. which made what it was twelve billion dollars profit. I think in between. In, yeah. In no, between, it's yeah. not. It's not profit. It's just revenue it comes revenues, in anyway. Revenues, go on. Sorry, yeah. revenues. In in twenty twenty, there were one point one million million albums, which made the same amount of revenue. Which is really cool. I kind of Googled this because I was really interested. And I found a statistic saying in 1970, just in the US, 4,000 albums came out. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah, possibly. So that was broad. That's just about there was 10 albums a day. And now if you work out on the basis of that, that, that figure of 2020, it's 3,000 albums a day internationally. So it's just unbelievable, isn't it? The choice and and how hard it would be to make yourself different and and, and to differentiate. Well, it's also it's a it's a smaller portions world, you know. Yeah, yeah, more yeah. and more people are on smaller and smaller portions. Because the other thing is that uh, is that you know if you go back to I don't know the eighties or the nineties, well certainly certainly the eighties. Yeah, the majority of records released were not independent. Now they are. Yeah, because. There's no gatekeeper to stop you. You know, the only way you could put out records back in the day was to sign a deal with EMI or Warner Brothers or CBS or whatever. You don't need that anymore. It's a completely the gatekeepers have gone. Go and hey, everybody wanted the gatekeepers to go, didn't they? You know, well, they wanted them to go, but now they've gone. You must miss that kind of element of the selection process, and also the fact that the gatekeepers brought with them all that A and R experience, so they could say to you, "Well, that's commercial, or well, that isn't commercial." And, and you know, let me tell you from experience, this might work, and this kind of production might work. And all that kind of advice and all that perspective is kind of gone, isn't it, just to a large extent? And he also, this guy David Macias, made made a very good point at the end of this piece which he made it as gently as he possibly could. And this is a guy who's immensely sympathetic to yeah. independent artists, you know, works for about 200 of them, you know. Um, and, and this is independence. This is not people arguing about how much they're getting paid by Universal or whatever. Yeah. And he says that the, the rate of business failure in the United States, I think he's at, is 65%. So 65% of businesses that launch don't work. Really are bands any different from that? <laughs> should they be any different from that? And that's a really interesting point. And, and we, should we be exactly? Should we expect them? To, is it because the general thing is it's unfair? <laughs> it's unfair because Ed Sheeran's making an absolute fortune. All these people say it was always thus. 
It just was. And uh, it, I was only looking this morning on on uh, on the streaming playlist. You know, the the the, the kind of the playlists of you know most streamed tunes right now. And you go down the top thirty, and you won't have heard of any of them, Mark. But the top one has thirty four million streams. <laughs> so that puts absolutely everybody else in the shade, you know. And it may only have 34 million streams for, you know, a few weeks, but, hey, that's a heck of a lot of streams. And, uh, you know, it's a totally it's a totally different business. From which, from which they earn 17 pounds and 10 pence. <laughs> well, no, if no, I think no, the point you, is if you get 34 million, you get no, a you lot you're of doing, money. You're doing well. You yeah. get a real lot of money. But but if you get what sounds, you know, if you get 10,000, you don't. No. You know, and, and of course, the problem is people think ten thousand. Isn't that like selling ten thousand records back in the day? No, it's not. It's getting something played once. It's like radio play. It's a completely different thing. Anyway, uh, we'll post that because it's really worth reading. Yeah, it's really worth reading. It's brilliant. The Word Podcast: Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week. So, Film Club. Here we are, Barry Norman style. We've finally been to see the same film, haven't we? Uh, you went to see Belfast, I think, a week or so ago, and I went to see it this week. What a fantastic film. Let's be honest. <laughs> it's gone quiet. I thought it was fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> there are elements of it that are a little bit over-sugary, a little bit over-sentimental, and a bit... Uh, just you know, a touch. Just a touch. <laughs> but I still thought it was terrific. Fantastic. Anybody who hasn't seen it will know. It's the Kenneth Branagh story about... You know, a ten-year-old boy playing the part of him as he grew up in Belfast. You know, during the, the troubles. But Dave, the soundtrack, phenomenal. the soundtrack, the soundtrack is of course mainly Van Morrison, and of course this came as a surprise to me because I'd no. you scan the publicity material for Belfast in vain to find any mention of Van is- Morrison, not on the poster as far as I could see, and not to the fore at all. Is this because he hasn't just blotted his copybook um, over, you know, the vaccine? He's tipped an entire bucket of quink. <laughs> Absolutely. He <laughs> has. It is. So, it's a Jackson Pollock-style expression. Of... <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's, uh, they've gone very quiet about him in the publicity, and uh, understandably so. But you can separate the man from the media. Uh, oh, absolutely. Sure. And listen, the, the thing that I tell you, I mean, I quite enjoyed the film. I have to say, and I'm not being sarcastic at all when I say that the bit of the experience I enjoyed most, and I was in a nice, comfy cinema with a very good sound system, which is not something you nor you could always say in the past. And the bit I enjoyed most was right at the end was the titles were rolling, credits were rolling, and they played the whole of And the Healing Has Begun by yeah. Ben Morrison. And so you're sitting there in a, in a darkened cinema. You're just looking at a black screen with white credits going past. And, 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 and you're utterly focused on the music, can't you? Because that's always yeah. been the power of music in cinema, that it can exclude everything else and make you listen in a way that you don't listen. And you're hearing ordinarily. A, a massive sound system. A marvellous sound system. Lots of different directions, and you're completely submerged in it. Aren't you? And I just thought it was wonderful, because the, the thing that it's interesting, you know, the Vammer isn't, well, he, he wrote those early songs about Belfast, but, you know, loads of other things that he wrote in America and so forth. And so the, very few of them are specifically about Belfast, apart from those kind of early ones. 
but still he is associated in your mind with with the place of Belfast more completely than any other musician I can think of no, in any I other think, city. I've, I totally agree with that. You know, you look at the details in his songs um, where he's not just talking about the streets and Cypress Avenue and Hindford Street or whatever, or he's talking about the hollow, he's talking about Davies Chipper, you know, and he's talking about, um, you know, gravy rings and wagon wheels and barn bracks and snowballs and just elements of, of, of Belfast life part, that are part of the fabric of that whole world. And you could argue that, that I think to some extent Joy Division sum up uh, an essence of Manchester. If I hear Joy Division, I kind of get the feeling of how I imagine Manchester might be. And you could probably say the same about the Smiths. There's a little bit of that about the Grateful Dead with San Francisco maybe the the, the 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 kinks with early london and certainly the leith with the proclaimers but but and and new jersey bruce springsteen but has anybody been associated that closely as van morrison and belfast i doubt it i don't think, think so i don't think so and he just keeps you know reappearing on the soundtrack i think i think he's written what he wrote one new song he has it, one new he? song on there yeah but most of it's i know bright side of the road and jackie wilson said and yeah. and the and the healing has begun and he's, he's just got that sound. It's kind of it's Irish American. It's, you know, it it sounds like the sea to me. It does. Know? It does. <laughs> it sounds like the open air. That yeah. Was, you know? yeah. And, uh, and it just absolutely works in that film. And I think if you took away Van Morrison music from that film, it wouldn't have anything like the resonance it has. Because I think it all comes from the music. Yeah, and to the also- extent that I think they should have actually stuck to entirely Van Morrison, because there's a load of other stuff in there. You know, at one point you get uh, Everlasting Love by the, oh, love, the love Affair. Which is great, and it sounds <laughs> lovely. But, but I mean, you might as well just stick in the same yeah. frame, I think. I, I, you could so easily have done the whole thing illustrated by Van Morrison. I think so. I think so. Um, but, you know, that 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 was my favourite bit, as the, uh, the yeah, right yeah. at the end. And... and Another item on Film Club, if I, I'd like to recommend this uh, to anybody who hasn't seen it, I, uh, Booksmart is on the BBC iPlayer this oh, week. Oh, you mentioned that. I've not had time to see it yet, but go on. <laughs> why, why, why did you like it so much? Uh, Booksmart is a, is a film that probably only made a couple of years ago, three years ago, something like that. And it's about two uh, teenage girls um, who are 18 years old who have dedicated them so dedicated themselves so much to getting into studying hard at school yeah. to getting into harvard or wherever that they realize on the last night of school that they've forgotten to party they haven't done any of that at all and so this is your classic kind of rites of passage film which we've seen many, what a many. brilliant twist as well because it's conventionally the other way around <laughs> yeah. do yeah. nothing but cane it for 3 years and then panic you know? and they've gone the other way around and uh, and it's a fascinating insight into, you know, growing up nowadays, if you like, you know, yeah. because young people have a, a, some issues that are the same and some issues that are very, very different. And so what intrigues me is that they're simultaneously kind of very advanced and very outrageous and also at the time, same time almost Victorian in their prudishness uh, about certain things, which you can imagine, you know, which is summed up really well by, I was just watching a bit of it this morning, 
where, where one of them says to another, talking about a boy in their class, says, is it true his parents bought him a sex worker for his 14th birthday? <laughs> Which I just thought that was wonderful. That's a really outrageous idea. But then it's a sex worker. It's not a hooker, you know. Everybody has to have a contemporary euphemism at absolutely every stage because that's the world they've grown up in, you know. And calling it sex worker makes it sound okay, doesn't it? And you know, acceptable. Well, I just thought I thought it was absolutely fantastic. It's really funny. We were talking. We did a recording this week with Alexis Petridis. Um, uh, from so you're at it. it was fantastic, really Alexis. Fantastic. So and many I, theories, absolutely. Oh, it's, it's really, I don't know if it's out there yet, it's probably not, but it will be soon. It's really good. He talked about all kinds of things, and he talked about he's got a daughter who's 15, 16, I think, and uh, he's very illuminating on the subject of how younger people get to hear music and their differing relationships with music and so forth. But he's, he said. His daughter had said to him, she liked tiptoe through the tulips. Was right. that? Yeah. <laughs> and so he found her tiny Tim doing tiptoe through the tulips on YouTube. And she, she looked at it. Absolutely horrified. Danger, danger. <laughs> That's right. Absolutely horrified. You know, whereas we all used to look at tiny Tim and thought, well, he's a bit odd. You know what I mean? But it's like, you know, the definition of odd has so changed, you know, over the years. So if you present a thing like that to a, a 16-year-old nowadays, it's like, what are you showing me this for? Yeah. I shouldn't be seeing this. It's a picture to be shown in class that came with a very strong warning. Yeah. Well. <laughs> yeah. Oh, anyway. So, Alexis, I, I do recommend that um, that you catch up with it if you haven't already done it's so. It's so good. It, it's absolutely excellent. So many ideas. We've had some really good ones over the, over the last few weeks, and we'll have more good ones in the future, which you can support our important work if you're not already doing so. And if you're already do, doing so, you'd be watching this, not just listening to it, by being a Patreon supporter. Uh, Patreon.com, word in your ear, full details there. More of that later on. Great excitement, Mark. Great excitement. Finally, your been, CD. My CD. Absolutely. Your four-pack. Four CDs, Mark. It's not just one. I know. This is great excitement. I've been, I've been thinking about this for... I've been boring you on the subject for you know more well, than two years. Well, you've been sending me, you've been sending me for the last I don't know what's been eighteen months or something. Just odd ideas of things you're doing, and so I'm thinking of choosing one of these. And oh, listen to this, it's Freddie King or whatever. And it's it's so funny. But explain the idea. Basically, it's a four CD thing. It's four, four CD set. Yeah, I, I don't know. People may be familiar familiar with this. Demon Records uh, have done these uh, collections with Gary Crowley and with Steve Lamack in the past, where basically. They focus on an area and, you know, somebody's particular interest and somebody does the selection and kind of fronts it, if you like. And so they came to me and said, would you like to put together a compilation of your favourite 70s records? And it's like, <laughs> would I? That, that is everybody's fantasy. It's, it's, really... it? I mean, it's just a lovely idea because it's, you know, there's all the stuff that we all know and, you know, sold lots of records. And then there's all those things that you thought were better. And, you know, they're, they're and they're the, thing well they, the thing they said to me was, don't pick the obvious, you know, because it's not, you know, oh, the greatest respect is yeah, not, yeah. not Jeremy Clarkson's 70s, you know what yeah. I mean? 
it's not it's not mainstream it's not I say it's not mainstream it's not hotel california and well it's you know, occasionally got well key in the UK. Food, isn't it? but it's just less well-known tracks so uh, yeah you pick less well-known Eastern. tracks yeah. or or well-known songs by people who you, who you might not know that they wrote the song yeah, or they yeah. did the song or whatever and so that that's what i set out to do and they said we want four cds each of those cds has ought to have some kind of thematic unity to it you know so i've got four cds and the first one's called so go young, through this as young americans the first yeah. one's called young americans and it's about people who just happen to be young americans at the time you know so it's delaney it's kind bonnie of, and mike yeah, smith yeah, yeah it's it's mike nesmith it's john prine it's warren zevon you know it's jesse winchester it's all kinds of people like that personal favorites of mine and then the second CD, um, which is uh, where I've stolen the title from ZZ Top, Beer Drinkers and Hellraisers, which is about, you know, loud 70s rock and roll and R&B. And, you know, it's about Freddie King and Johnny Winter and yeah. Montrose and the Jay Giles Band and all, all that kind of stuff. Stuff we used to play in my flat in Wood Green. While uh, you know, headbanging back in yeah, back yeah, in yeah, 1974. Yeah. So that's that's it. and it's also, I hope, the ultimate in-car CD experience. Please don't go too fast, readers. And, and then the third CD is is uh, Blue Ball Blues, which is such a good title because anybody our age gets that straight away. When you're going up and down a motorway. Back in the day, there was the Blue Boar service station, wasn't it? Where you would stop what for Gap? Have revolting food. In fact, Roy Harper actually wrote a song about it. Wasn't it? He the did. Food is the worst he got food. sued. He got sued, didn't he? he? Got sued. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's about What for Gap and what uh, for and, Gap? The, and there was a line, there was a rhyme with What for Gap, which I won't draw that's attention right, to. That's right. That's right. But it's uh, all about that time when people were just in old. Comma vans, weren't they? Just, just, just kind of, you know, steaming up and down from. So this is this is who I've got on Blue Ball Blues. Yeah, Ronnie Lane and Slim Chance, Family, Murray Head, Bebop Deluxe, The Motors, The Records, Pato, Pato, Pato. Uh, the Blues on Reds, Sharks, Sharks. I oh, that love was the Andy Fraser, Chris Spedding group. Yeah, absolutely, Jess yeah. Roden, Terry Reed, Robert Palmer, Mott the Hoople. Fairport Convention, Dave Edmonds, Chili Willie and the Red Hot Peppers, ladies and gentlemen. And but that's a good Shorts. example because the Motors track was, is it Dancing the Night Away? Dancing the Night Away. That's kind of quite well known, but they're, they're a kind of obscurish group, aren't they? But other, other, other times it's kind of, uh, it's it's completely unknown groups with uh, an, an artist with, with tracks that you might not have heard of. And then finally, uh, the great Roy Harper, the aforementioned Roy Harper, within, when an old cricketer leaves the crease. Yeah, brilliant. You know, so, you know the opportunity to put that on a CD is uh, was, was too good to miss. And the f- the fourth CD is is all is all female acts because you know it's very often said in the seventies there were hardly any female acts. You know it was always Sandy Denny and Elkie Brooks and yes, <laughs> Maggie right. Bell and that's your lot. Joan Armour Trading. Actually, it? actually there were lots, but you know very often they didn't particularly come to prominence. You know, or d- came to prominence years later. So I've got Sandy Denny, obviously, Marion Faithful, Linda Ronstadt, Carly Simon, Joan Armour Trading, Kate Nana McGarrigal, your favourite song? My absolute fave. Heart yeah. Like a Heart Wheel. Heart Like a Wheel. Maria Mulder, Wendy Waldman, Valerie Simpson, Ellen Foley. Ellen Foley, who yeah, sang yeah. with Meatloaf on uh, Band Out of Hell, didn't she? Yeah. 
B.B. Snow, Linda Lewis, Valerie Carter, at the Roaches, Bridges and John, and so on and so forth, Judy Sill, all kinds of people like that. I have to tell you, you might think, you might think putting together a CD, a full CD set, was just unmitigated joy. And let me tell you, you're right. It was. <laughs> I can imagine. Anyone listening would be weak with envy. This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit. Well, I was reading uh, the other day, well, you've read it too, the, the piece that I think Danny Baker had posted, which I thought was absolutely fascinating because it, it, it makes the point that all over the music industry, there are people, historically, there have been people who, who think there's a pile of cash and they deserve a bit of it. And whether they do or they don't, and in this case, I think they really genuinely do, how hard it is to get any of that money back. And it's a story about a guy called Burton Silverman, who was the artist who painted in 1970 three pictures that finished up being used uh, as artwork on Jethro Tull's Aqualung. And it's an extraordinary tale, isn't it? I mean, he's mm-hmm. Terry Ellis, who was running Christmas at the time and massively involved with the creative elements of Jethro Tull, had seen his artwork and liked it and had uh, commissioned him and given him a blank canvas. Again, which is another another reason why he seems to deserve something. It was his idea to take the idea of the character from the song Aqualung and paint this kind of this, this derelict, you know, out on the street. And Ian Anderson never liked the picture. And uh, anyway, it was used and the record was enormous and in subsequent different formats, CDs and cassettes and all that, you know, it, it still got used. And uh, and Burton Silverman eventually felt that he, uh, he deserved some money, didn't he? Well, he, and, to, and he, just a second, he got some money. He got, got $1,500. $1,500. Reasonable was, amount of money. 1970 is a lot of money. No, reasonable amount of money, absolutely. And he got a trip to Britain for him and his wife. Come over and he, did. I mean, he came I mean, over to watch the, the band rehearse. Extraordinary way people did things in those days. Come over, yeah. watch the band rehearse and do some sketches, yeah. which, which he did, from which, you know, all this stuff derived. Was there a contract? No. Did no he contract. get a lawyer involved? No. <laughs> Nothing at all. Did he think that this was going to prove to have an afterlife? No. Did Jethro Tull think this? No. no probably not. Nobody at but all. But then what happened is that rather like the Rolling Stones lips, you know, that that artwork, that image from the front of Aqualung became a kind of logo for the group, didn't it? It's as recognisable as they possibly more so, actually, as, as any other kind of representation of Jethro Tull. And, and therefore there are, there are coffee mugs being sold with it on and there are posters and there are T-shirts and it's just become a massive part of their merchandise operation. So the whole story is about him trying to trying to kind of get, get the money back. And what he does is he, realising that the, the legal procedure against Warner Brothers is going to be complicated, he goes individually to both Terry Ellis and Ian Anderson, and they both say kind of no, don't they? They, they just they, they, they point out that, uh, that uh, they think the deal is, is fair and that they can't help him. But also it must be, you know, and this is 50 years ago, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, they, and the ownership of, uh, of Aqualung will have changed. You know, it, it, whoever it, it's been, yeah. you know, Chrysalis was Chrysalis was part of Ireland, I think, at the time, and then it was independent, and then it went to what EMI did it? I can't remember, and then sold on probably Warner Brothers in the states, as Warner you Brothers say, you know. yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know, this becomes it becomes an asset of some multinational 
one of millions of assets that they own. And do they really want to unpick one bit of it? I wouldn't have thought that they'd do at all, you know. And it's it's always very difficult to go back and say, well, you, you know, you are owed a little bit more because couldn't somebody else say that they're owed a little bit more? Well, that's right. I don't know. If you settled one case, a load of other people would think that they had a chance, wouldn't they? It's it's very difficult, and um, because I don't know if people are ever happy with these things. You know, you, you know, if if you if you're going to have a full and final settlement, it would have to be. And as soon as you get learned friends involved. The sums involved have to be four times as high yeah, to, pay, friends. to pay for melanin friends. Yeah, as everybody friends will drag it out indefinitely if they're uh, representing the, the the deep deep pocketed record company. Uh, can, can we ju- person- can we just while we're talking about we can't let a mention of melanin friends go past this week without strongly suggesting that anybody who hasn't already done so should get across the details of the case that's known as. Wagatha Christie, oh, it's waging fantastic. at the moment between Colleen Rooney and uh, and, and and Jamie Vardy's uh, Jamie Vardy's wife. It's Which fantastic. Just, just just to, just just a point of detail here. That I think the cost of this case legally is five hundred pounds a minute, wasn't it? <laughs> and they had a ten-hour session on one day. So that I think is is that three hundred thousand pounds one day. I mean, you always you always wondered how, you know. Sorry, we're just tangented the football. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the footballers back in the day used to make a lot of money when they played, and then they drank it afterwards. Did they? You know, they always ended up on potless as a by running a pub or whatever. (laughs) And, And nowadays they earn ridiculous sums of money to the extent you think. How are they going to lose these sums of money? I think oh, we've got a hint. They, they find ways. They're they sometimes involving a cat. <laughs> They're imaginative new ways. This is a, and uh, and I do love the detail that Mrs. Vardy lost her phone in the North Sea. In the sea, that's right. No, not just the sea, Mark. The North Sea. Right, yeah. You know what is Mrs. Vardy doing anywhere near the North I Sea? I really do not know. Anyway, sorry. How do we get? No, it's fantastic. We're talking well, about middle of the idea that that uh, you know the the aqua the Aqualung artwork also is lost, wasn't it? Yes. The thing about the story of um, yeah. John Pash, who was the 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 art student from Royal College of Art, who Jagger, God, Jagger's brilliant. Jagger had seen his work. Jagger's idea to do the lips and thought this was the guy to do it and he did it and it was so fantastic and eventually the Stones gave him some more money because they yeah, were yeah. brilliant it was but also somehow he had retained copyright to that thing he sold the logo for I think something like £400,000 now uh, the guy who painted the, um, the the aqualung sleeve, you know, Burton Silverman, it, it couldn't do that because the painting's yeah, missing, it. isn't it? Yeah, got it. But I think it's been stolen or it's just missing. I mean, nobody knows where it is. So that was his one other revenue is, okay, I can't get a percentage for this, you know, but I could at least sell the original. Hasn't even got the original. The Word Podcast. Fix yourself a drink and it's like being in the pub. We're joined by our uh, special Patreon birthday guest, Nick Foreman. Happy birthday, is it today, Nick? Uh, no, it's it's a it's a couple of days' time on on the on the fifteenth on the fifteenth. And where are you, Nick? Well, I'm calling from Leicester. Alright, Leicester. So this afternoon, I've got the four thirty kickoff against West Ham. Oh, uh, right. which we're which we're running on to later on. Are you a regular? 
I am season ticket, but not only Johnny Come Late because I was there when we were. In, when oh, we were uh, I was there when we were shit. <laughs> yeah, basically. Yeah, although although we've had a tradition of winning for the last sort of eight or nine years, generally speaking. Right. Um, so have well, you, got, have you won got, the league famously a few years ago? Have you got have incredible. you got a kind of a new uh, you know section of supporters who are only used to the good times who are who are possibly um, well. I think it was the case. I mean, when they started to get good and popular, commensurately, that the stadium filled up. So we've always got a full house. Right. Oh, well, best of luck this afternoon. When you won the league, the entire city appeared to take a week off to go mental. Was that the oh, it, it was. It was an, it, it'd make an amazing documentary, and it probably has done, actually. Not not least that it was done on a sort of ragtag and bobtail yeah. team with, with brilliant team spirit. And, of course... Uh, won by 10 clear points and didn't just sort of eke out that. No, absolutely. It was incredible. It was absolutely thrilling, the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what are you doing on your birthday? Have you got a programme of activities worked Uh, out? No, in fact, I'm just going to be in the office on on my birthday, it being a Tuesday. Uh, My son shares the same birthday as me, so in some respects he's always sort of overshadowed. Oh, Yes, absolutely. uh, A a little bit. Uh, But now they're both sort of free, and at the moment we're sort of, um, empty nest and just trying to just trying to uh, reconcile with that now. So you're empty nest because they're at university or whatever? That's right, yes. Yeah, the, the youngest one just went down to Loughborough last September. Yeah, uh, so can I just tell you from the point of view of experience, they don't go away forever. They no, come back. Right. They come back. <laughs> they do. Come back and they expect a well-stocked fridge. Yeah, well, <laughs> Absolutely. Loughborough is only 10 minutes away from Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. There you go. And when they do finally, when they do finally kind of leave house, leave home properly, they still leave most of their possessions behind them mm, and insist yeah. that you don't throw them away. Anyway, uh, it's traditional. It's traditional. We've only been doing this a few weeks. It's traditional that our birthday guest gets to set the agenda for this little like this little part of the podcast. Anything you'd like to raise? Question? Whatever. Well, it, it, indeed, I, I have. Perhaps two questions and see which one you might prefer to answer. Um, All right. Oh, there's a choice. As part of the word in your ear Christmas tradition, uh, we had our get-together on Boxing Day when we were supposed to tell everybody what we got for Christmas. And I'd slightly misread the email and just told you I'd got monogrammed towels. Um, (laughs) So so my, my, my first question would be, has there been any time in your journalistic career when you've had a Head in your hands. I really wish I didn't. I, di- I didn't write that, or I, I hadn't. I regret writing that, either good or bad. That like you just thought, oh, I got it. Oh my word. Oh, um, pe- people always say about. Oh, sorry. We're going to choose the question. Yeah. All right, go on. Carry on. Carry on. And the, sec- the, the second, the second question is, and obviously with the recent passing of Meatloaf, I've just sort of picked a, two or three album covers, and I was wondering, in your <sighs> opinion, yes. whether those album covers had actually in some measure either helped hindered or indeed <laughs> advanced the reputation of the uh the, the music within oh god, god. Oh, i think the album the album covers yeah. is a good question isn't yeah, it? yeah yeah that's a good one oh well it's you know the the i've kind of written a book about this really you know that they and and, and the, the thing i always say is that um Whereas George Orwell's 1984 is republished every 10 years with a different cover to bring it up to date, notionally, nobody would dream of doing that with a classic album. 
because the cover is as much the album as the music within. I don't think that applies with CDs, but I think it applied with the 12 inch, you know, uh, LP. And so, you know, you held up Sergeant Pepper, obviously, you know, that that is, you know, we look at that and we can hear that record, can't we? Still to this day, you know, the people, people, people encounter the visual image of Sergeant Pepper more frequently than they encounter the music. And that's it, it, that's why it's embedded in, in insiders, isn't it? It's not, not just listening to it. It's looking at it. And, um, you know, I know a lot of people said this when Meatloaf died the other week, you know, that, that you know, was the, was the cover of Bat Out of Hell a contributor to the success of, of that album? Well, clearly it was. And he was, he was a very respected kind of comic book artist, wasn't he? That guy who, I don't know, yeah. comic book is, is a bit sniffy way of referring to him. I think it was, it was the only cover he did, wasn't it? That was quite a big deal, him doing it. For, for people who follow that world. I have to, I have to confess, I don't. Um, and I think it was hugely important. <laughs> Whereas you also held up Trap Mass Replica, which for those who haven't seen it, is, is Captain Beefheart wearing a trout's head. There you are, with a hat over the top of it. And, uh, and that would certainly not encourage people to, uh, to pick up that record. Uh, it's a kind of crass and reductive concept in some ways. Don't you think you think they could have come up with something so much more imaginative and and uh, everlasting? But you can't disassociate it with the record. It's just there are various sleeves, aren't there? Atom Heart Mother, and I think uh, I think uh, King Crimson's first album. In the oh God, of, yeah. of the of the Crimson King. That that album sleeve has just come into the frame in the last few years as being one of those absolutely classic albums. Well, you, you know, the, you you know the story of that that guy, the guy who painted it? It's called Barry, is he? Barry, I can't remember his second name. He was called an old Barry. mate of those, was an old school friend or something? He was a, he was a guy somebody knew he was at university in, in, I think it was him, Imperial College. Yeah, yeah. And I think he was a scientist. But he just did this, did the, you know, these kind of you know, larger than life illustrations as a, as a hobby. And they just, they said to him, just do one for us. And so what he did reputedly was he got in front of a, a mirror. It's his own mouth. Isn't opened it? his mouth <laughs> and, uh, and then painted the resulting image, which, you know, ended up being, it, it was all, it was all the kind of uh, publicity that King Crimson needed, wasn't it? In those days, I remember the time that record came out, which was 69, is it? And, uh, and you went to record shops and the whole window of record shops were just taken up with, with covers of In the Court of the Crimson King. And everybody bought it because curiosity, what could that sound like if it looked like that? And there was nothing else on that cover apart from there was nothing no words else on it. Nothing. And I don't think there's nothing on the outside. Album. Yeah. But of course, Atom Heart Mother is, is even more extraordinary. It's bizarre, isn't it? Because the story, you know, they they just had this um they had this long piece. So I'm gonna go a tangent on Atom Heart Mother. Yeah. <laughs> it's my specialist subject at the moment. They they developed a long piece that they used to call the pudding or something like that within the band and then they just they wanted to record it so they started off with a run track with uh, 
um, Mason and uh, and uh, and Roger Waters, and they had to play quite long, and there was no way of editing it and some of things. So they had to try and keep time, which was not something Pink Floyd were terribly good at. And then they couldn't finish it, and they had to go on tour in the in the states. So they got what's his face? Um, is it Ron Geeson, the uh, you know the arranger, mm-hmm. the kind of the guy that Roger Waters had done the body with, and said just kind of write it, do a tune on the top of this, you know. So Ron Geeson laboured all summer to do this whole thing, and uh, and then when they got the studio to record it, they had a load of session players in. Uh, who were choosing to be rather sniffy that day. And Ron Geeson almost had a fist fight with one of the horn players. And eventually the producer had to say, Ron, why don't you just come in the, in the booth here and let somebody else conduct because there's going to be fisticuffs in there. And that's the thing that ended up being called Atom Heart Mother, purely because somebody saw that headline, Atom Heart Mother, in the Daily Mail. In the newspaper, yeah. And then the cow... <laughs> This is a hypnosis leave, wasn't it? This is, this is, I'm going to tell you about this, Mark. That cow, I'm I'm getting this from the recesses of my memory. The name of the cow, I think, was Lulu Bell. (laughs) And was a cow photographed in a field near Potter's Bar. Because Storm Thorgerson's mother lived in Potter's Bar. Yeah. And so they just basically went out there and said, find the first cow you can get to stand still, take a picture. And then going to the band and saying, there's your cover. There's your cover. And they go, that's it. That's it. (laughs) And so the the key part of the identity of Atom Heart Mother all these years later is the cow. It's not the music, is it? Nobody's sitting around talking about fourth track on Atom Heart Mother. That's what it is. Precisely. It's the cow. On this Meatloaf album, everybody's credited except it seems the artist, the cover artist. Oh, uh, really? I, you surprised uh, me. What, uh, on the back, let me just reread that. Yeah, it tells you Tom Todd Rundgren's involved and Jim Steinman's involved. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Who yeah. even mastered it? It's dedicated to Wesley and Wilmer a day and Louis or Louis Steinman. On, on nothing about who... Oh, really? Who oh, well, I... I well, a grand I, tradition. We were talking uh, about that earlier on this very podcast, actually. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. The Aqualon yeah. cover and uh, and the fate that awaited the guy who painted the picture on the front of that. I don't know if, I don't know if Sergeant Pepper does actually say Peter. Oh, it does say Peter. It does say... Does it say... Does it say... Jan Howarth? Does it mention Jan Howarth? Oh, yeah. Staged by... Peter Blake and yeah, 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 it was his his wife and collaborator at the time, and uh, she was the person. Well, she she did an awful lot of it, didn't she? Getting together all those, yeah, all those extraordinary things. So yes, I think the you know the answer to your question is you know that they the the visual images attached to twelve inch LPs were absolutely core to their appeal. Yeah, separable, and you and you simply wouldn't change them. Whereas CD, as soon as you do it that size, it sort of doesn't matter. There's there's a theory. The great Jackson Brown. I mean, if you think of Jackson Brown's first album cover, sorry, am I boring you? <laughs> but sorry, it's my specialist subject. Um, the first Jackson Brown album cover is is a is a, a canvas water carrier. 
that in, that in those days you used to fill up with water and then put over the radiator of your car when you went driving in the desert so it stopped it overheating. With a weird and meaningless phrase on it, isn't it, the picture? Well, no, it's not meaningless at all once you know it's a canvas bag because it's saturate before using. That's right, but you don't, yes. Yeah. Whereas on the album, nobody really knew, you know, yeah. at all. But his theory was that album covers were like the shields of Native American warriors. So a warrior coming to manhood would choose his symbols that would represent him. I don't know, eagles, trees, God knows what. And these would be on a shield. And a shield is roughly the same size, same area as a 12-inch album cover, which, again, is roughly the same area as a design on a T-shirt. <laughs> and it just kind of works, that theory. So that's the optimum size. That's it? the optimum yeah, size. If you do it smaller, it simply doesn't work. And it's that whole idea that you can walk down the street with it under your arm and people knew, well, they didn't know what it was. You know, I think about this with the Asmart mother, particularly people walking the, into the bus station in 1971 or whatever, with that under their arm, everybody else thought, he's got a picture of a cow. No, people no, thought, it was no, he's got a copy of Asmart. message, wasn't it? Completely. <laughs> I know. And the moment it became reduced to the CD, the people just lost interest in that kind of detail because yeah, you just yeah. couldn't see it. It, it just goes. became a kind of logo and a, and a, and a kind of cell, really. So your second question, I, I cannot answer in detail. All I'll say is that, like everybody who's spent a lot of their time writing, and Mark will probably be the same, there are occasions when we snap into the fetal position under the duvet in the middle of the night where we think about things we have said or written <laughs> that didn't prove to be true. That's just the way it goes, isn't it? Really, that's that's the Let's nature of the job. Details. <laughs> that's the nature of the job. It is you know? Sometimes yeah. you just get it wrong. Yeah, yeah. But you know, it's like it's like doing podcasts. You know, people say, "Oh, you got something wrong." Well, you, you know, you're opening a mic and you're talking for an hour and a half. You're about to you're about to get something wrong. I hope there's nothing too terribly wrong in what we've just said, Nick. No, that's lovely. Thank you. Okay. Well, have a good birthday. Have a great birthday on Tuesday. And uh, all the very best. The Word Podcast. Two cocoa tins and a piece of string. And here we are. Any other business? Joined by Alex Gold. Where are you now, Alex? I am in Swinging Miami, where it is raining, would you believe? Good. 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 That's really comforting. Serves you right. I I won't mention that it's also 23 degrees, but... Uh, uh, No, fine. I'm just so glad it's raining. That's great. Major dilemma this morning because I wasn't re- I wasn't really sure whether I could wear shorts or not. Um, oh, it was such a I know, <laughs> terrible. Um, I've actually gone for skinny jeans, uh, just so you know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, any correspondence uh, from the massive? Anything we should uh, we yeah, should be dealing there is. with? Go on. We've had uh, some uh, uh, quite a lot of feedback for Giles Fraser's Five in Five. Oh um, yes, we oh, have. Go on. So basically the concept of five and five for anybody uh, who uh, wasn't with us last week is um, any artists that have uh, put out five great records in in five years um, consecutively. Uh, Andrew Slattery uh, via Patreon has uh, suggested Roxy Music. Um, So Roxy Music 1972, For Your Pleasure, 73. Stranded, also 73. Country Life. Yeah. 
74 and Siren 75. Wow, I've forgotten that all those in five years. That's amazing. Yeah, that, that's yeah. That's, that's a winning streak, actually. Yeah, isn't it? it is good. It is. It's a purple yeah. patch. Glenn Crouch, also via Patreon, uh, posits Stevie Wonder. Uh, I haven't got years here, but I, I've got the album titles: Music of My Mind, Yeah, Talking Book, Innovisions, mm-hmm. Fulfilling This First Finale. And songs in the key of life. You're not wrong about that. No, He's that's a really good choice. Not, not wrong about fabulous. It. And actually, more than one of the well, there's one double in there, isn't there? Songs in the key of life is a double, isn't it? It's even so more that's remarkable. Technically six, yeah. yeah Chuck yeah. Lonson, uh, all the way from Swinging Georgia on Patreon, <laughs> um, puts forward REM, Murmur, 1983, Reckoning, 84, Fables of the Reconstruction, 85. Life Switch Pageant, 86, and Document, 87. That's liftoff, isn't it? really is. That's fantastic. Ian Gould, also via Patreon. Uh, Miles Davis. Um, Miles in the Sky, 1968. Fields de Kilimanjaro, 1969. In a Silent Way, also 1965. So, no, no, 69, sorry. Vicious yeah. Brew, 1970. Jack Johnson, 1971. Uh, I've got albums in four years, he points yeah, out. Yeah. Um, and John Morris, also via Patreon, um, suggests Brian Eno uh, with Another Green World, <laughs> Discreet Music, Before and After Science, Ambient One, Music for Airports, and Music for Films. I don't know if Brian Eno counts. Half of those are silence, aren't they? Uh, <laughs> can you get that excited about those? I'm not really sure, actually. I, quite, I like Brian oh, Eno. I know, but I mean, I just don't know how, uh, how utterly <laughs> classic they are. <laughs> would you know which one was playing, which one was next? You know, I'm not sure you would. <laughs> we're, we're actually, um, oh, actually, to, to correct something, pedantic correction from Mark Stevens, uh, we said, that Ed Sheeran, Ed Sheeran uh, was a Chelsea supporter. He's not. He's an Ipswich supporter. Oh, is he? Sorry about that. So he knows. He knows about pain. You know. And um, so, who else? Yeah, we were talking about things that were um, inscribed on the back of album covers with instructions of as to how to play them, to play them loud and so forth. You know. Uh, and Andrew Slattery's found this on the rear cover of a Horse Lips Dancehall Sweethearts. There's going back. It says it, the next is file under reasonably popular. <laughs> I don't that's remember good. that. But that's very good. That's horse good. Li- There's been no horse lips revival, has there? No, it, it, it hasn't happened at all. Not yet. No, we're on tenterhooks. Yeah, yeah. Any moment. Uh, we've uh, this week we've also launched our, um, our down the rabbit hole special service for Patreon supporters in which Mark and I um, go down the rabbit hole in pursuit of personal obsessions of ours, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, in ridiculous detail. And it's been very warmly received. It is. very really encouraging. We will do more. We will do more. The first one's about the Dave Clark Five. Uh, There'll be be more coming in due course. And if you'd like to to get one of these, and, of course, we we make them available via the genius of Patreon. We make these so that they, they come through your your podcast provider, don't we, Alex? I think that's Do fair indeed. to say. Yeah. Um, so if you'd like to join up in the ranks of our Patreon supporters, and we'd love you to do that, if you go to patreon.com slash word in your ear, and the full details will be there. Um, uh, what else we got to talk about, Alex? We've got, we've uh, 
penciled in our, our word in the park for uh, indeed June, June the eighteenth. Eighteenth. It's a Saturday. Um, We've booked the weather. Um, We've booked, booked the weather. Yeah, is in Holland Park. Uh, further details will be coming of that in due course. We've got and also around of word around, at it, around, we? We? Yeah, we got. We must mention again the Alexis Petridis one, which is coming yep. out soon, which is yep. fantastic. Yeah, there are lots more. Uh, and we're also actually look out for me and Mark Ellen uh, to mark the release of my uh, my four CD set Deep Seventies, which is coming out at the end of May. Uh, Mark and I will be droning on about live, old records, live and in appearance, live than you'll ever be uh, at, at Rough Trade East. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, further details of that. Underneath this. This podcast was brought to you by The Word. (laughs) 